The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to the Spectator Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Judy Golding, the daughter of the late Nobel laureate William Golding. Judy's the author of Children of Lovers, a memoir of William Golding by his daughter, and we're here to talk about the way in which uh, Faber and Faber are reissuing William Golding's canon in batches of three, the first being The Inheritors, Pincher Martin and The Spire, with new introductions, and Judy, first thing I can say, obviously, the one they're not reissuing or don't need to because it's been so continually in print and prominently is Lord of the Flies. And your father obviously is, you know, he's the Lord of the Flies guy. How much do you think that has shaped his reputation? Do you think that's right? I mean, you know, has it cast the success of that book, cast the rest of his canon sort of into the background a bit? Hi, Sam, and thank you for asking me on your podcast. I think, yes, it has. It has cast the others into the shade. You have to remember, well, it's a good idea to remember, my dad was always mesmerised by his good luck, as he saw it, partly, in having Lord of the Flies become this extraordinary thing. And also he was a very superstitious man. So he would never have said anything like, I'm sorry that Lord of the Flies has done so well. In fact, I feel terrible even saying that because he knew that it had given him a lot of freedom via money and also fame and people took him seriously. And maybe the other novels got a bit of a lift from Lord of the Flies while simultaneously being compared with it. I mean... He, he felt his best novel, as I expect you know, was The Inheritors, the one he wrote after Lord of the Flies. And I think he's probably right, actually. I think it's a great, extraordinary novel. But um, we won't quarrel with the success of Lord of the Flies. I mean, you know. Is there, do you think, a sort of, as you see it at least, a distinct theme that unites his books or a kind of set of preoccupations that, if you like, would call kind of Golding-esque... Yeah, I think there are, but I have to admit, over the sort of years, the emphasis of what I thought has changed. I now think the big theme is the division of everything into two, the worlds which have no bridge. There's a novel by him called Free Fall, which puts that overtly and says, you know, there's the world where the trains run on lines and everything, and then there's the world where mystical things can at least be imagined, whether they happen or not. And I think that, for me now, perhaps because I'm, you know, getting quite old, is the central theme. But I, I also think I'm right about that. I think he was overwhelmingly preoccupied. And it was also something very much shown in his own life, in his own personality. He was almost not two people, too glib, but he was this very jolly funny, practical man who went round, you know, fixing things, though perhaps not very well. And also he was this man interested in mysticism. I was just reading a bit from Darkness Visible about Matty looking at the sun in a globe of light. 
and how this affects him. And I'm sure that's a description of my father being affected by some curious phenomenon of lights being refracted through glass. Yes, there's a lot of light in the spire as well, isn't there? There's a almost kind of visionary opening of that Jocelyn just seeing the light as something solid. Yes, yes. And I mean, I'm sure you've had this experience of seeing dust in a, in a beam of light that does make it look. And that then you see the word beam in another context. You know, it's like a beam of wood, perhaps, because there, there is something solid. And he says the most solid thing was the light. And of course, you could see that as a, a metaphor. But the whole thing, I mean, I think one of the other defining themes in my dad's novels is how there's so much metaphor in the actual novel that it's quite hard to separate out where he's saying something real and where he's using something as a metaphor to convey some very abstract truth. I don't know, that's, that sounds a bit complex for, you know, for me. Well, there, no, but there is that sort of dual nature. I was really fascinated. Your book begins with a description of an absolutely hair-raising sailing accident and his preoccupation with sailing. But, you know, he's really a practical man in this part of his life. There's this business of him sort of building and fixing ships and thinking about how you go about navigating and dealing with painters and mainsails and jibs and all that sort of thing. And in the books, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's very practical and how Pincher Martin survives on his island, how the boys survive on their island how you build a spire with or without foundations you know there's a very kind of you know or even nap flints or whatever it is in the inheritance absolutely yes yes there's this sort of groundedness in the real world and yet they're so sort of allegorical and metaphorical and mystical yes i don't know quite where in a sense to go with that i mean it's true that he was a very practical man and he did this sort of sailing stuff that everybody who sails, you know, this was before you could have roller reefing and radio things where you could be rescued. And that the episode that I start with in my book, that was only one of many tremendously hair-raising episodes because he had this other paradox that he was a very frightened man, but he was also fantastically capable of taking risks. And he took a lot of risks when we went sailing. And we didn't have life jackets or anything like that, you know. Um, so it was a zero-sum sort of thing. If something had gone really wrong, we would have drowned. But my mother said only Bill could get us out of the things that only Bill could get us into. And that is completely, completely true. It just knocks the nail on the head. I think he moved between these two modes really very easily. He wasn't any good at machines. Things like lawnmowers and cars, he was hopeless at those. And cameras, actually. Yes, you've got a lovely description of a fancy new car sort of acquiring a series of little saplings along its running ports. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if he was amused by it, but that was a, a good example of his real way of life, taking over this thing that he'd been able to go out and buy, you know, which was not a, an easy thing for him in the early days. Now, this terror he had, you know, you describe also how... You know, he had night terrors and he comforted you as a child or attempted to when you had the same ones. He, there was sort of existential panic in him somehow, wasn't there? Where did that come from, do you think? I agree completely. There was, I don't know that he would have called it an existential panic. I think he was 
death and the idea of death seems to have come into his life very, very early. And not in the sort of, oh dear, your hamster's died kind of way, you know, in a really elemental way to do with human bodies decaying and being very near you. And I guess that comes from the fact that his parents' house was next to a graveyard and I'm sure he was right in thinking that their little garden was actually part of the old burying ground. You can see, if you look at it, you can see the levels match. But, I mean, lots of people live next door to graveyards. It's also true, his mother told horrifying ghost stories. They weren't just spooky, they were actively horrible. And he puzzles at one stage over why she told these things. And I think the answer is that she was like him, she was a storyteller and she had to, she had to tell the story. But it's very difficult to say why people turn out the way. I mean, you must have come across this. My father's elder brother doesn't seem to have been like that at all, seems to have lived in the house next to the graveyard very, very happily and doesn't seem to have had a fear of the dark or anything like that. So there's, there's something that we can't capture, which is perhaps rather satisfying in a way. And how much... Do you think, how important do you think the war, his experience of the war, was in shaping his books and in the preoccupations that went into them? I mean, it's obviously was big in your childhood. Yes, it was huge, and I think that reflected his own experience. I think it's terribly difficult now. It's like the joke about, you know, soldiers of the Middle Ages, you're now entering the Hundred Years' War sort of thing. It's hard to see the war as something being expected. But I think that's true too. I think for the last five years of the 1930s, he and people like him, he was very left-wing before the war, just expected a cataclysm. And he says at one stage he didn't worry about whether he was going to have children or not because he thought there was going to be an end of everything. And of course people really wondered whether the Nazis would successfully invade. I mean, people seriously thought that maybe they would, they would actually be, um, be killed by the invading Nazis. So I think it's important to see the experience of war as a build-up, as well as the actual horrible events, and then, of course, finding out about the extent of the Holocaust after the war. I don't think you can overstate the importance of it. I think it didn't just affect his novels, I think it affected his whole life. I mean, he talks, for example, about their staying in Europe and they stay in a hotel and they talk to the chambermaid and they're in Germany and they ask her where she comes from and she says, Dresden. And my father says, well, you know, to a British person, that's like saying, this was your fault because of the firebombing of Dresden. So he had so many complicated feelings about the war. He could feel guilt about Dresden. He could feel rage about the Holocaust. He could feel the terribleness of knowing that it had happened at all. And I don't think that ever, ever went. I mean, the girl who came from Dresden, that's sometime in the 1980s, less than 10 years before he died. So it went on and on and on. And that line he has, I remember in one of his essays where he says, you know, man sort of creates evil or produces evil like a bee produces honey. Yeah. Do you think that 
came from his experience of war or, or oh absolutely yes yes and i think he meant it as that's what we do you know that's our species characteristic we may be some of us great artists uh, like bach or shakespeare or whatever like the man at the end of the inheritors who is simultaneously you know plotting murder and has participated in the death of Liku and all that, but is also making the the hilt of the dagger with which he's going to murder his boss, in effect. And he says there, you know, the hilt's more important than the blade, but I don't think that means that he thinks human beings are going to discard the blade any time soon. The blade is there and to be used. And he never loses that. He, he, and he talks about us. He says, when he's talking about human capacity for evil, he doesn't say the human race. He says us, us, us humans. What was he like as a father? I mean, what, you know, there's a man with these great preoccupations and terrors and, and also a man who was, who was sort of devoted to his wife, almost, as you express it, to the lessening of his relationship with his children. How did you navigate him? Well, well, to begin with, I suppose I didn't navigate him at all. I just accepted that there was this kind of brown bear-like person, you know, who was very large and very warm and slightly unpredictable, but fantastically interesting all the time. After he died, I realised that I had just got used to him as a source of information, to sort of stretching out my hand and, you know getting the information. Now I had to go and look it up, and this was very annoying. It's definitely true that they had a close and, to a certain extent, excluding relationship. And I I think this probably happens with a lot of happy marriages. They were unusually interested in each other. I mean, you know, they'd sit over not very nice cups of coffee in the kitchen and talk for hours. And this would be after decades of marriage. I suppose one learnt to do other things. I mean, I was very fond of my grandfather. I was, um, But I always knew I had to get away from home. Whereas I think my brother found that much more difficult. I think he was, in a sense, perhaps trying to get back into the relationship in a, a sense that I wasn't. I'd not exactly given up, but I decided that my life lay elsewhere. I don't think he ever quite decided that. Yeah, you said that he was competitive hugely hugely yes he, he was very, i mean you could see him playing chess very competitively but also talking and even playing duets on the piano he was a very good pianist and perhaps competitive there is an unfair term he liked to do things well and to do things fast um but if he couldn't do them well he'd do them fast anyway i think <laughs> And he expected other people to do that. But was others, you know, like to go more slowly and more carefully sort of thing, you know. He was fantastic good fun. I think it's very difficult to see that when you just read the books. Unless you read some of the funny stories in, in The Scorpion God, for example, there are some very witty stories. He did make us all laugh a great deal. Yes, I wonder you say that that side of him, at least in, in canonical novels is down low a bit. I mean, how much do you see the man you knew in the fiction? Not very much, honestly, no. And the so-called semi-autobiographical novels, things like Freefall, 
the pyramids and especially the paper men. It's as if he's got a sort of fisheye lens and is looking at himself and they're all horrid pictures that I do not recognise, you know. And actually, some of the traits of Pincher Martin, who my father said he made into about as unpleasant a character as he possibly could, some of those are drawn from my father's life. They're a bit about going down to the cellar. In Pitcher has a nightmare about um, how he has to go down to the cellar and explore the dark depths where the bodies are crammed into the wall. And he meets a hideous old woman there. So it's a sort of Golding-esque dark vision. That is apparently from his own childhood. And he says that. And though he sometimes, I think, perhaps colours things up a bit, I don't think he ever... My guess is he's pretty truthful. That sense of his darkening or producing a kind of unsympathetic account of himself. I mean, you talk also in your book about that when he drank, which was a problem or a solution and a problem for him for much of his life. You say it was when he was seized, he didn't like himself very much at that point and was sort of trying to make himself an object worthy of his hatred, if that makes sense. I mean, was there a strong line of self-hatred in him? Oh, yes. Very bewilderingly, because, I mean, he, I don't see where it came from. I mean, he, he was a good son. He was a very good husband. In lots of ways, for his time, he was a very hands-on father. He was a very honourable man, though he continually says he isn't. But he, he was utterly straightforward. I don't know where the self-hatred came from, and I could theorise about it, but I don't think that would be useful. But it was there. It was a streak. And, as you say about alcohol, it was both a problem and a solution. And sometimes it seemed to me that it was the way he had of getting in touch with these aspects of himself. And if somebody irritated him, for example, there were a number of things... I mean, if he drank at lunch, for example, if he just got topped up enough, I think, uh, and also if there was somebody who irritated him, then that would be a very, very potent mixture of circumstances and there would be an episode of him in this other dimension. But a lot of the time, when he said, I won't drink, you know, and he successfully kept off it, which he did for a long, long period, he was much happier, much happier. But... um, I would have thought, I mean, in the war, he seems to have been reasonably brave. He doesn't seem to have been a ludicrous hero, but... Um, I shouldn't say ludicrous, but he doesn't seem to well, have... Extravagantly heroic. Yes. I really don't know. I suppose perhaps it came from some traumatic episode in his childhood, or maybe not. I mean, maybe that was what his genes gave him, his genes and his upbringing. Both his parents were very... Buttoned up is the wrong word. His father was a very determined man who was teetotal, who'd worked himself into the sort of middle-class job of a schoolmaster. And I think it's probably true that his expectations of his sons were quite in that mould. But he was also a very, very loving man. I I really loved him very much. But my father did say, well, he'd mellowed by the time you... You met him, sort of thing. And I suppose that's probably true. I saw the same process of mellowing, actually, with my father, with his grandchildren, and I think that's probably true. I'm probably nicer to my grandchildren than I was to my children. 
It's just, you know, you feel, well, does it really matter, you know? Torn up a book, well, you know, that's one thing a book is probably good for, sort of thing. Oh, there's the story of the smashed violin. Oh, I, yeah, I've still got the violin downstairs and I sometimes look at it and think, that really was a pity, but his father doesn't seem to have... Sorry, we should explain this for the listeners. The... Yes, Can you... I will, I will, I'm yeah. sorry. Long ago, in the early years of the century, when my grandfather stayed in Cornwall and met his wife, who was his landlady's daughter, they played duets. My grandfather played the violin and my grandmother the piano. And eventually, my grandmother gave him what was really rather a reasonable violin that they'd had knocking around in their Cornish boarding house. I don't know why, maybe somebody had left it behind. And years later, when my father, as a teenager, trying and he says, trying very inadequately to play the violin, and being very frustrated as a teenage boy, and very, I think, sexually frustrated at the time, but also overwhelmingly against the things that his parents wanted him to do, took my grandfather's violin out of its nice case and sort of punched it in the front and broke it. And it's now been repaired. I mean, we took it to be valued after my father's death. And the chap in the violin shop said, well, the back of the violin and the sides is very good. The front is a botch. And it was repaired, but botched. And apparently my grandfather, who was very, very fond of this instrument and played it with enthusiasm and great musicality, forgave my father for for doing this extraordinarily dreadful thing and in the pyramid it's changed into a piano which is a much less kind of personal I mean I don't know that my father would admit that because he loved his piano but it's not a thing that you you know cradle in your arms and it doesn't have a female shape I think perhaps my father may have felt the um female shape of a violin should be not mentioned in this book. He says that he put his fist through the front of the piano, which I think is, you know, artistic license. Yes. That thing about the female shape, I mean, his... You know, what's your sense about his relationship with sex? Because we know that he was devoted to your mother. Yes. And was he a faithful husband? I think so. The jury's out on whether he had one... Well, he certainly had a relationship with a then young woman who was a literary scholar, an American, and she's written a couple of very good books about him, actually. And in a sense, whether or not they actually had sex, I think, is unimportant. Well, I mean, it's not unimportant, but I I don't think it alters the truth of the relationship, which was that it really dented my parents' marriage. Apart from that, I should think he was probably completely faithful. And his attitude to sex, I think, was on the whole quite sort of jolly and healthy. Oddly, because his parents were definitely buttoned up about that. He says that quite specifically. It was claimed, I think he wrote somewhere, didn't he, that... Well, it was claimed he tried to rape somebody as an undergraduate. Was that something that tormented him? I think the way he treated women as a young man was a real subject of, of grief to him for a long time. I think that particular episode, and, you know, I hope it wasn't a real attempt at rape, I like to think it was going beyond the line where a nice 
boy would have stopped. But still, it was dreadful. And she ran off crying, he says. She ran off crying. That's not good. I mean, I never asked him about this because I didn't know about it until after he died. I don't know how to put that together with the person I knew. And it's it's one of the things I have thought a lot about because I don't want to imply that he did something less than he said. It's also true, though, that he was very hard on himself. I think he regretted very much the way he'd behaved to women before he met and married my mother. And also, of course, he he ditched his fiancée when he did meet her, and that was another terrible memory for him. And he writes about that quite a lot, and going back to Marlborough and perhaps driving around where she used to live a bit and thinking, well, is she alive or dead? I don't know. I think it was his attitude to male behaviour was that he'd behaved badly and then he was more or less rescued from that by a happy marriage. What's your sense of his, his religious feeling? Because it seems to me that the books are sort of suffused with a religious sensibility, but you know, it's not at all uncomplicated. It's vastly complicated. I mean, if somebody said to him, are you a Christian, he would always say no, because he didn't want to be put in a box. But on the other hand, if somebody had said to him, well, you don't believe in God, he would have said, of course I believe in God. I think it's idiotic not to believe in God. He records at one point actually laughing at the absurdity of not believing in God. And, I mean, that's that's pretty clear, I think. That's quite late on, too. That's 70s or 80s. He was brought up in a household where people didn't believe in God. But that was what they said. Whether it was really what they felt, I don't know. He says a very sad thing about his father, that his father took up the position of not believing in God because he couldn't believe in the sort of vengeful and cruel God suggested by the religions he he had come across. And so he describes him as being a a sort of grieving atheist up until the day he died. Uh, A very religious man, but not allowed by himself to be religious. So, I mean, he certainly, he never took communion, and he said this really rather awful thing to somebody who was a, a very devout Catholic, actually, a friend of his, And she said, well, what would you think if you took communion? And he said, I should be sick. But he thought the Bible was a repository of extraordinary beauty as well as um, wisdom. We went to a wedding and he was cross because he felt the officiating priest kept on adding his own words and wouldn't let the words that were there already just do the job. He felt very frustrated. It's all tied up with language as well, which was one of his great loves. And I think the kind of linguistic enjoyment of of religion was something he really... That's putting it at a rather trivial level. But I think it was very important for him. How do you read Jocelyn in The Spire in light of that? Well, the other thing is my dad was thrilled to find contradictions. He looked for them everywhere and, you know, he'd find another one. So I think it's the central contradiction of the spire is this man who makes dreadful compromises and uses people and breaks up the fabric of worship in the cathedral. 
in the end manages to produce this stupendous prayer in stone. And he would have thought, well, I don't have to explain that, you know, if you want to explain it, you know. But as far as I'm concerned, it's just something I thought of in my mind. From his own point of view, I think he would have thought that Jocelyn was a bit on the edge of madness. But then I think he suspected that he was as well. And, I mean, people often say, and my brother has actually said this, that Matty in Darkness Visible is partly based on my brother who had schizophrenia or had a diagnosis of schizophrenia because he has this extraordinary, almost uncontrolled imagination. But I think it's also true of my father that his imagination was only just under his control. Do you think your brother's struggles with mental health were something he sort of saw as a caution to himself? I think he thought he'd get away with it, whereas David didn't, for whatever reason. I mean, who shall say? And it's such a complicated business. I mean, and people continually change their mind about whether schizophrenia is schizophrenia or whether it's something else mixed up with bipolar and everything. And luckily, I think my parents didn't have to go through all that because I think that's largely happened since they died in the 90s. And I'm glad to say my brother, you know, more or less stabilised. And in many ways, I think his years since my parents died have been quite happy and quite realistic too, you know, not deluded. So the sort of visionary in religion being close to madness, I think that is, though, I think that's something my dad was very interested in and certainly thought had something going for it. Yes, Ben Myers, I think, calls him in his new introduction to The Spire, says, you know, he's a visionary writer. Yeah, that's fair, yes. I mean, he reads somewhere, he's shopping in Salisbury, and he reads about somebody tackling a thief, and in his mind he becomes this person tackling him, and he rugby tackles this thief. And then, to his astonishment, as he puts his arms round this chap's hips, he finds that he's sort of thin and wiry and practically starving. And this is all in his head, you know. And then he says, and then I was back on a Salisbury street. So it was almost as if things could be brought into his mind without his volition or control. You talk in the book about how he he had a sort of vision of, not a ghost, of some sort of spiritual presence in his parents' house in Marlborough and asked you and you'd seen the same thing. <laughs> yeah, ish. I mean, he had a much more definite, definite experience. But it's certainly true, that particular room, I've been back and the rest of the house is completely changed. And that room still has the same feeling. It's very, I mean, of course, this could all be one's tiny mind working overtime. He saw this vision as a very small boy in a cot when he had a fever. I saw a much lesser version when I was about 11 or 12, waking up on some morning in the dark, and I saw a shape that looked like a little bear with nice brown eyes. For him, the sort of reassuring thing was that I um, saw it as friendly, the way he saw this little creature on the curtain pole dancing along. He saw it as friendly. And who knows? I mean, his great friend, Adam Bittleston, an anthroposophist, follower of Rudolf Steiner, who was a, a mystic, 
said, ah, you saw an earth spirit. They're, they're fond of small children. So, you know, that <laughs> seems as good an explanation as any, really. That does. And how did he take to the kind of cavalcade of honours he got? There's a lovely description of how his... He kept his Infinity Award second class for a science fiction short story in the downstairs loo. But how did he respond to the Nobel, for instance? Well, I think he was very pleased to get the Nobel. I think um, he'd been told a couple of times before that he might get it. And then he was furious the morning he did get it because somebody rang him up and said, you may get a call from Stockholm, you might be... And he thought, as another two hours agony and then disappointment... But he was really pleased, yeah. And then it became exhausting. And I think it's probably true, there was a controversy about it. One of the people on the committee said that there had been an argument and that Golding had not really been the front-runner for some people. There'd been, And I think he felt, well, maybe lots of other people could have got it, but I got it and I'm, I'm very pleased, you know. What was his relationship with his contemporaries and with other writers? Did he see himself as kind of part of a group or movement or in sort of conversation with writers before or around him? Or were they doing their own thing and he was separate and, if anything, you know, in competition maybe, but not connected? I'm sure he didn't see himself as part of a, a school or a, a group or anything. I don't know who he compared himself with, really, I suppose Iris Murdoch, he knew Iris Murdoch and thought she was a very, very clever woman. But her novels puzzled him, I think, in a way that his novels don't seem to have puzzled him, really. Who else did he like? He liked John Fowles. He liked, I suppose, a lot of dramatists. He thought Beckett was just the absolute bee's knees. He thought Beckett was the sort of prince of writers, really. Admired him more than anybody else, I think. But he certainly, yeah, he was ploughing his own furrow and thought it was really important to do that, I think. Yes. You say earlier on in the book that the one thing you could never do is, is leave an edition of The Odyssey in a bookshop. <laughs> that was strangely um, telling. That's, I'm sure it was his favourite book. He says somewhere, I wonder if I'll read The Odyssey again before I die. I can't bear the idea that I shall never read it again. And he does reread it quite often, you know, I mean, in Greek. And I suppose, you know, he had, I don't know if you know those lower editions that have the Greek on one side and the English on the other. He had several versions of those. I put volume one of one of his copies of that in his coffin, which uh, I slightly regret now, but um, I think it was, well, it was a feeling at the time that he shouldn't go into whatever happens next without a copy of the Odyssey. So there it is. Judy Golding, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. listening to the spectators books podcast very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the itunes store we'd love to hear from you 